0: CASE 2 ANCIENT SORCERIES PART 4 OF John SILENCE This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. JOHN SILENCE BY ALGERNON BLACKWOOD CASE 2 ANCIENT SORCERIES PART 4 This part of the story he told to Dr. Silence, without special coaxing, it is true, yet with much stammering embarrassment, He could not in the least understand, he said, how the girl had managed to affect him so profoundly, and even before he had set eyes upon her, for her mere proximity in the darkness had been sufficient to set him on fire. He knew nothing of enchantments, and for years had been a stranger to anything approaching tender relations with any member of the opposite sex, for he was encased in shyness, and realized his overwhelming defects only too well. Yet this bewitching young creature came to him deliberately. Her manner was unmistakable, and she sought him out on every possible occasion. Chaste and sweet, she was undoubtedly, yet frankly inviting, and she won him utterly with the first glance of her shining eyes, even if she had not already done so in the dark, merely by the magic of her invisible presence. "'You felt she was altogether wholesome and good?' queried the doctor. "'You had no reaction of any sort, for instance, of alarm?' Vezin looked up sharply with one of his inimitable little apologetic smiles. It was some time before he replied. The mere memory of the adventure had suffused his shy face with blushes, and his brown eyes sought the floor again before he answered. I don't think I can quite say that, he explained presently. I acknowledged certain qualms, sitting up in my room afterwards. A conviction grew upon me that there was something about her, how shall I express it, well, something unholy. It was not impurity in any sense, physical or mental, that I mean, but something quite indefinable, that gave me a vague sensation of the creeps. She drew me, and at the same time repelled me, more than, than... than—he hesitated, blushing furiously, and unable to complete the sentence. Nothing like it has ever come to me before or since, he concluded, with lame confusion— I suppose it was, as you suggested just now, something of an enchantment. At any rate, it was strong enough to make me feel that I would stay in that awful little haunted town for years if only I could see her every day, hear her voice, watch her wonderful movements, and sometimes perhaps touch her hand. Can you explain to me what you felt was the source of her power? John Silence asked, looking purposely anywhere but at the narrator. "'I am surprised that you should ask me such a question,' answered Vezin, with the nearest approach to dignity he could manage. "'I think no man can describe to another convincingly wherein lies the magic of the woman who ensnares him. I certainly cannot. I can only say this slip of a girl bewitched me, and the mere knowledge that she was living and sleeping in the same house filled me with an extraordinary sense of delight.' "'But there's one thing I can tell you.' he went on earnestly, his eyes aglow, namely, that she seemed to sum up and synthesize in herself all the strange hidden forces that operated so mysteriously in the town and its inhabitants. She had the silken movements of the panther, going smoothly, silently to and fro, and the same indirect oblique methods as the townsfolk, screening like them secret purposes of her own, purposes that I was sure had me for their objective. She kept me, to my terror and delight, ceaselessly under observation, yet so carelessly, so consummately, that another man less sensitive, if I may say so, he made a deprecating gesture, or less prepared by what had gone before, would never have noticed it at all. She was always still, always reposeful, yet she seemed to be everywhere at once, so that I never could escape from her. I was continually meeting the stare and laughter of her great eyes, in the corners of the rooms, in the passages, calmly looking at me through the windows, or in the busiest parts of the public streets. Their intimacy, it seems, grew very rapidly after this first encounter, which had so violently disturbed the little man's equilibrium. He was naturally very prim, and prim folk live mostly in so small a world that anything violently unusual may shake them clean out of it, and they therefore instinctively distrust originality but Vezin began to forget his primness after a while. The girl was always modestly behaved, and as her mother's representative, she naturally had to do with the guests in the hotel. It was not out of the way that a spirit of camaraderie should spring up. Besides, she was young, she was charmingly pretty, she was French, and she obviously liked him. At the same time, there was something indescribable a certain indefinable atmosphere of other places, other times, that made him try hard to remain on his guard, and sometimes made him catch his breath with a sudden start. It was all rather like a delirious dream, half delight, half dread, he confided in a whisper to Dr. Silence, and more than once he hardly knew quite what he was doing or saying, as though he were driven forward by impulses he scarcely recognized as his own. And though the thought of leaving presented itself again and again to his mind, it was each time with less insistence, so that he stayed on from day to day, becoming more and more a part of the sleepy life of this dreamy medieval town, losing more and more of his recognizable personality. Soon, he felt, the curtain within would roll up with an awful rush, and he would find himself suddenly admitted into the secret purposes of the hidden life that lay behind it all. Only by that time he would have become transformed into an entirely different being. And meanwhile, he noticed various little signs of the intention to make his stay attractive to him, flowers in his bedroom, a more comfortable armchair in the corner, and even special little extra dishes on his private table in the dining-room. Conversations, too, with Mademoiselle Ilse became more and more frequent and pleasant, and although they seldom travelled beyond the weather or the details of the town, The girl, he noticed, was never in a hurry to bring them to an end, and often contrived to interject little odd sentences that he never properly understood, yet felt to be significant. And it was that these stray remarks, full of a meaning that evaded him, that pointed to some hidden purpose of her own and made him feel uneasy. They all had to do, he felt sure, with reasons for his staying on in the town indefinitely. "'And has monsieur not even yet come to a decision?' she said softly in his ear, sitting beside him in the sunny yard before dejeuner, the acquaintance having progressed with significant rapidity. Because, if it's so difficult, we must all try together to help him. The question startled him, following upon his own thoughts. It was spoken with a pretty laugh, and a stray bit of hair across one eye, as she turned and peered at him half roguishly. Possibly he did not quite understand the French of it, for her near presence always confused his small knowledge of the language distressingly. Yet the words, and her manner, and something else that lay behind it all in her mind, frightened him. It gave such point to his feeling that the town was waiting for him to make his mind up on some important matter. At the same time, her voice, and the fact that she was there so close beside him in her soft dark dress, thrilled him inexpressibly. It is true I find it difficult to leave, he stammered, losing his way deliciously in the depths of her eyes, and especially now that Mademoiselle Isse has come. He was surprised at the success of his sentence, and quite delighted with the little gallantry of it, but at the same time he could have bitten his tongue off for having said it. "'Then, after all, you like our little town, or you would not be so pleased to stay on,' she said, ignoring the compliment. "'I am enchanted with it, and enchanted with you,' he cried." feeling that his tongue was somehow slipping beyond the control of his brain. And he was on the verge of saying all manner of other things of the wildest description, when the girl sprang lightly up from her chair beside him, and made to go. "'It is soup a l'oignon to-day,' she cried, laughing back at him through the sunlight. "'And I must go and see about it. Otherwise, you know, monsieur will not enjoy his dinner, and then, perhaps, he will leave us.' He watched her cross the courtyard, moving with all the grace and lightness of the feline race, and her simple black dress clothed her, he thought, exactly like the fur of the same supple species. She turned once to laugh at him from the porch with a glass door, and then stopped a moment to speak with her mother, who sat knitting as usual in her corner seat just inside the hallway. But how was it, then, that the moment his eyes fell upon this ungainly woman, the pair of them appeared suddenly as other than they were? Whence came that transforming dignity and sense of power that enveloped them both as by magic? What was it about that massive woman that made her appear instantly regal, and set her on a throne in some dark and dreadful scenery, wielding a scepter over the red glare of some tempestuous orgy? And why did this slender stripling of a girl, graceful as a willow, lithe as a young panther, assume suddenly an air of sinister majesty, and move with flame and smoke about her head, in the darkness of night, beneath her feet, Vezin caught his breath and sat there transfixed. Then, almost simultaneously with its appearance, the queer notion vanished again, and the sunlight of day caught them both. And he heard her laughing to her mother about the soup à l'oignon, and saw her glancing back at him over her dear little shoulder with a smile that made him think of a dew-kissed rose bending lightly before summer airs. And indeed. The onion soup was particularly excellent that day, because he saw another cover laid at his small table, and with fluttering heart heard the waiter murmur by way of explanation that Mademoiselle Ilse would honour monsieur to-day at déjeuner, as her custom sometimes is with her mother's guests. So actually she sat by him all through that delirious meal, talking quietly to him in easy French, seeing that he was well looked after, mixing the salad dressing, and even helping him with her own hand. And later in the afternoon, while he was smoking in the courtyard, longing for a sight of her as soon as her duties were done, she came again to his side, and when he rose to meet her, she stood facing him a moment, full of a perplexing sweet shyness before she spoke. "'My mother thinks you ought to know more of the beauties of our little town, and I think so too. Would monsieur like me to be his guide, perhaps? I can show him everything.' for our family has lived here for many generations. She had him by the hand, indeed, before he could find a single word to express his pleasure, and led him, all unresisting, out into the street, yet in such a way that it seemed perfectly natural she should do so, and without the faintest suggestion of boldness or immodesty. Her face glowed with the pleasure and interest of it, and with her short dress and tumbled hair she looked every bit the charming child of seventeen that she was, innocent and playful, proud of her native town, and alive beyond her years to the sense of its ancient beauty. So they went over the town together, and she showed him what she considered its chief interest, the tumble-down old house where her forebears had lived, the somber aristocratic looking mansion where her mother's family dwelt for centuries, and the ancient marketplace where several hundred years before the witches had been burnt by the score. She kept up a lively running stream of talk about it all of which he understood not a fiftieth part, as he trudged along at her side, cursing his forty-five years, and feeling all the yearnings of his early manhood revive and jeer at him. And as she talked, England and Surbiton seemed very far away indeed, almost in another age of the world's history. Her voice touched something immeasurably old in him, something that slept deep. It lulled the surface parts of his consciousness to sleep, allowing what was far more ancient to awaken. Like the town with its elaborate pretense of modern active life, the upper layers of his being became dulled, soothed, muffled, and what lay underneath began to stir in its sleep. That big curtain swayed a little to and fro. Presently it might lift altogether. He began to understand a little better at last. The mood of the town was reproducing itself in him. In proportion, as his ordinary external self became muffled, that inner secret life, that was far more real and vital asserted itself. And this girl was surely the high priestess of it all, the chief instrument of its accomplishment. New thoughts, with new interpretations, flooded his mind as she walked beside him through the winding streets, while the picturesque old gabled town, softly colored in the sunset, had never appeared to him so wholly wonderful and seductive. And only one curious incident came to disturb and puzzle him, slight in itself, but utterly inexplicable bringing white terror into the child's face and a scream to her laughing lips he had merely pointed to a column of blue smoke that rose from the burning autumn leaves and made a picture against the red roofs and had then run to the wall and called her to his side to watch the flames shooting here and there through the heap of rubbish yet at the sight of it as though taken by surprise her face had altered dreadfully and she had turned and run like the wind calling out wild sentences to him as she ran of which he had not understood a single word, except that the fire apparently frightened her, and she wanted to get quickly away from it, and to get him away, too. Yet five minutes later, she was as calm and happy again as though nothing had happened to alarm or waken troubled thoughts in her, and they had both forgotten the incident. They were leaning over the ruined ramparts together, listening to the weird music of the band as he had heard it the first day of his arrival. It moved him again profoundly as it had done before, and somehow he managed to find his tongue and his best French. The girl leaned across the stones close beside him. No one was about. Driven by some remorseless engine within, he began to stammer something, he hardly knew what, of his strange admiration for her. Almost at the first word she sprang lightly off the wall and came up smiling in front of him, just touching his knees as he sat there. She was hatless as usual, and the sun caught her hair in one side of her cheek and throat. "'Oh, I'm so glad!' she cried, clapping her little hands softly in his face. "'So very glad, because that means that if you like me you must also like what I do and what I belong to.' Already he regretted bitterly having lost control of himself. Something in the phrasing of her sentence chilled him. He knew the fear of embarking upon an unknown and dangerous sea. "'You will take part in our real life, I mean,' she added softly, with an indescribable coaxing of manner, as though she noticed his shrinking. You will come back to us. Already this slip of a child seemed to dominate him. He felt her power coming over him more and more. Something emanated from her that stole over his senses, and made him aware that her personality, for all its simple grace, held forces that were stately, imposing, august. He saw her again moving through smoke and flame amid broken and tempestuous scenery, alarmingly strong, her terrible mother by her side. Dimly this shone through her smile an appearance of charming innocence. "'You will, I know,' she repeated, holding him with her eyes. They were quite alone up there on the ramparts, and the sensation that she was overmastering him stirred a wild sensuousness in his blood. The mingled abandon and reserve in her attracted him furiously, and all of him that was man rose up and resisted the creeping influence, at the same time acclaiming it with the full delight of his forgotten youth." An irresistible desire came to him to question her, to summon what still remained to him of his own little personality, in an effort to retain the right to his normal self. The girl had grown quiet again, and was now leaning on the broad wall close beside him, gazing out across the darkening plain, her elbows on the coping, motionless as a figure carved in stone. He took his courage in both hands. "'Tell me you'll say,' he said unconsciously imitating her own purring softness of voice, yet aware that he was utterly in earnest. "'What is the meaning of this town, and what is the real life you speak of? And why is it that the people watch me from morning to night? Tell me what it all means, and tell me,' he added more quickly with passion in his voice, "'what you really are yourself.' She turned her head and looked at him through half-closed eyelids, her growing inner excitement betraying itself "'by the faint color that ran like a shadow across her face. "'It seems to me,' he faltered oddly under her gaze, "'that I have some right to know. "'Suddenly she opened her eyes to the full. "'You love me then?' she asked softly. "'I swear,' he cried impetuously, "'moved as by the force of a rising tide. "'I never felt before. "'I have never known any other girl who—' "'Then you have the right to know.' She calmly interrupted his confused confession, for love shares all secrets. She paused, and a thrill like fire ran swiftly through him. Her words lifted him off the earth, and he felt a radiant happiness, followed almost the same instant in horrible contrast by the thought of death. He became aware that she had turned her eyes upon his own, and was speaking again. "'The real life I speak of,' she whispered, "'is the old, old life within, the life of long ago,' the life to which you too once belonged, and to which you still belong. A faint wave of memory troubled the deeps of his soul as her low voice sank into him. What she was saying he knew instinctively to be true, even though he could not as yet understand its full purport. His present life seemed slipping from him as he listened, merging his personality in one that was far older and greater. It was this loss of his present self that brought him to the thought of death. "'You came here,' she went on, "'with the purpose of seeking it, and the people felt your presence and are waiting to know what you decide, whether you will leave them again without having found it, or whether—' Her eyes remained fixed upon his own, but her face began to change, growing larger and darker with an expression of age. "'It is their thoughts constantly playing about your soul that make you feel they watch you. They do not watch you with their eyes.' The purposes of their inner life are calling to you, seeking to claim you. You were all part of the same life long, long ago, and now they want you back again among them. Vezin's timid heart sank with dread as he listened, but the girl's eyes held him with a net of joy so that he had no wish to escape. She fascinated him, as it were, clean out of his normal self. Alone, however, the people could never have caught and held you, she resumed, the motive force was not strong enough. It has faded through all these years. But I—she paused a moment, and looked at him with complete confidence in her splendid eyes—I possess the spell to conquer you and hold you, the spell of old love. I can win you back again, and make you live the old life with me. For the force of the ancient tie between us, if I choose to use it, is irresistible. And I do choose to use it. I still want you. And you, dear soul of my dim past— She pressed closer to him, so that her breath passed across his eyes, and her voice positively sang, I mean to have you, for you love me and are utterly at my mercy. Vezin heard, and yet did not hear, understood, yet did not understand. He had passed into a condition of exaltation. The world was beneath his feet, made of music and flowers, and he was flying somewhere far above it through the sunshine of pure delight. He was breathless and giddy with the wonder of her words, they intoxicated him, and still the terror of it all, the dreadful thought of death, pressed ever behind her sentences, for flames shot through her voice out of black smoke, and licked at his soul. And they communicated with one another, it seemed to him, by a process of swift telepathy, for his French could never have compassed all he said to her, yet she understood perfectly, and what she said to him was like the recital of verses long since known, and the mingled pain and sweetness of it as he listened were almost more than his little soul could hold. Yet I came here wholly by chance, he heard himself saying. No, she cried with passion. You came here because I called to you. I have called to you for years, and you came with the whole force of your past behind you. You had to come, for I own you and I claim you. She rose again and moved closer, looking at him, with a certain insolence in the face, the insolence of power. The sun had set behind the towers of the old cathedral, and the darkness rose up from the plain and enveloped them. The music of the band had ceased, the leaves of the plain trees hung motionless, but the chill of the autumn evening rose about them and made Vezin shiver. There was no sound but the sound of their voices, and the occasional soft rustle of the girl's dress. He could hear the blood rushing in his ears, he scarcely realized where he was, or what he was doing. Some terrible magic of the imagination drew him deeply down into the tombs of his own being, telling him in no unfaltering voice that her words shadowed forth the truth. And this simple little French maid, speaking beside him with so strange authority, he saw curiously alter into quite another being. As he stared into her eyes, the picture in his mind grew and lived, dressing itself vividly to his inner vision, with a degree of reality he was compelled to acknowledge. As once before, he saw her tall and stately, moving through wild and broken scenery of forests and mountain caverns, the glare of flames behind her head, and clouds of shifting smoke about her feet. Dark leaves encircled her hair, flying loosely in the wind, and her limbs shone through the merest rags of clothing. Others were about her, too, and ardent eyes on all sides cast delirious glances upon her, But her own eyes were always for one only, one whom she held by the hand. For she was leading the dance in some tempestuous orgy to the music of chanting voices, and the dance she led circled about a great and awful figure on a throne, brooding over the scene through lurid vapors, while innumerable other wild faces and forms crowded furiously about her in the dance. But the one she held by the hand he knew to be himself, and the monstrous shape upon the throne he knew to be her mother. The vision rose within him, rushing to him through the long years of buried time, crying aloud to him with the voice of memory reawakened. And then the scene faded away, and he saw the clear circle of the girl's eyes gazing steadfastly into his own, and she became once more the pretty little daughter of the innkeeper, and he found his voice again. "'And you?' he whispered tremblingly. "'You child of visions and enchantment! How is it, that you so bewitched me that I loved you even before I saw. She drew herself up beside him with an air of rare dignity. The call of the past, she said. And besides, she added proudly, in the real life I am a princess. A princess, he cried, and my mother is a queen. At this, little Vezin utterly lost his head. Delight tore at his heart and swept him into sheer ecstasy. To hear that sweet singing voice, and to see those adorable little lips utter such things upset his balance beyond all hope of control. He took her in his arms, and covered her unresisting face with kisses. But even while he did so, and while the hot passion swept him, he felt that she was soft and loathsome, and that her answering kisses stained his very soul, and when presently she had freed herself and vanished into the darkness, he stood there, leaning against the wall in a state of collapse creeping with horror from the touch of her yielding body, and inwardly raging at the weakness that he already dimly realized must prove his undoing. And from the shadows of the old buildings into which she disappeared, there rose in the stillness of the night a singular long-drawn cry, which at first he took for laughter, but which later he was sure he recognized as the almost human wailing of a cat. End of Case 2 Ancient Sorceries Part 4